Cheers to a great day and this ice-cold Corona. You know what would make this day even better? My grandma's carne asada. Or your grandma here with us, making carne asada. She does love a cold Corona. Throw in some dancing. Oh, we can watch the game. I'll drink to that. So a backyard concert with football, food, dancing, and Corona? And your grandma. Or we could keep it simple. Simple is good. Want a Corona? Thanks. Salud to the perfect day. Corona, la vida más fina. Get your Corona at ordercorona.com. Relax responsibly. Corona extra beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. And now, and now, prepare yourself for the only talk radio show you'll want to turn up. Crank this thing. Sirius XM Pandora presents the place where your hard rock and metal voice can still be heard. You got your ass, baby. Unfiltered, uncensored, say whatever you want. Hit the record button. Anything can happen, you know. I know that ain't nobody out there came to be mellow tonight, now did you? I say, I say there ain't nobody. I'll say there ain't nobody not out there that even wants to be a little bit mellow now, is there? Anybody wants to get mellow, you can turn around and get the fuck out of here, all right? This is the Trunk Nation Podcast, Podcast. with host A. Trunk. What's up, everybody? It's Eddie Trunk, and welcome to another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. New every Thursday, wherever you get your podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. And as I tell you guys every week, the interviews you hear on this podcast all originated on my Sirius XM radio show, Trunk Nation, heard live Monday through Friday, 3 to 5 Eastern on Faction Talk, Channel 103, or anytime on the Sirius XM app. If you are only listening to this podcast and you have Sirius XM or can get Sirius XM, which means you live in the U.S. or Canada, you're only getting a tiny fraction of what I do live on the radio every day. Daily, I'm bringing you rock news, interviews, conversations, debates, all good stuff. Make sure you come on board and join us for the Daily Show. And uh, hey, the holiday season is here. Maybe a good good thing to ask for for a Christmas gift. And if you want to sample SiriusXM, all you got to do is go to SiriusXM.com slash Eddie Trunk. You can get three free months of the service, no credit card required, and you can listen to me each and every weekday on the app on demand or in the live window and hear the full picture of what we do covering the world of rock with six shows a week. Be sure to follow me on social media at Eddie Trunk, Twitter or X, Instagram and Facebook page for info and updates. I'm a little over a week away from celebrating my 40th year in broadcasting. Big event going down December 11th at the House of Blues in Vegas. 
Sammy Hagar, Michael Anthony headlining the show. It's going to be great. I'll keep you updated on the radio show and on social media. And I'll let you know if we're able to release any more tickets as we get a little bit closer. All right. This week on the podcast, two interviews for you. Coming up second, Joey Tempest, lead singer of the band Europe. Joey checked in from his home in England and he talked about, uh, well, actually he was on the road when he called in somewhere in Europe, Europe in Europe makes sense. But he talked about uh, a brand new Europe song that's just come out, a coming documentary and a coming new album. So Joey Tempest, lead singer of the Swedish band Europe coming up, of course, best known for the final countdown. That's coming up a little bit later on in the podcast, but we lead this week with Rick Emmett from Triumph. Rick recently released an autobiography, talked a little bit about Triumph's history, if there's a future for the band, and uh, some great, funny, revealing stories from his current book, which has just come out. So we'll talk to Rick first, Joey Tempest, an international Eddie Trunk podcast, Canada to start, Sweden to follow. We'll start with Rick Emmett right now. Enjoy. How are you, Rick? Edward Trunk Esquire. I'm doing excellent. How are you? <laughs> I wish I was an Esquire. I'd be making a lot more money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm doing good. I'm doing the rounds of interviews now. So, you know, uh, my, my throat might give out at any moment, but uh, I'm, no, I'm doing good. Well, fortunately, you just got to uh, just got to talk and not sing when you do the interviews. As long as you don't have a gigs lined up, you should be OK. Yeah, no, I, no gigs lined up, although I am going to Sweden for New Year's. Is that right? To, to play a gig or for to just t to vacation? Uh, it's it's a kind of a long story, but uh, I'll try to tell it short. Uh, I have some friends that play in a band that goes and plays the Junior World Hockey Championships wherever they might be, and so this year they're in Gothenburg, Sweden, and so the Canadian contingent they go on over there, and and you know it's like the. Moms and it's a junior hockey, so it's the moms and the dads and the girlfriends and the brothers and the sisters. You know, like families go and and support them. And the Canadian contingent in the stands at these games is always sizable and crazy. So for New Year's, they always throw a big party and they get a band to play, and they like to do Canadian classic rock kind of stuff. And so I have a couple of friends that have been in the band in past years, and they said, come on, Rick, you got to come. And I went, oh, I don't think so. And they said, no, no, Rick, we're going to do some Triumph songs this year. you got to come. Anyways, long story short, I'm going. They're going to have a string quartet and some horn players. And I went, well, I've never heard, you know, hold on and lay it on the line and magic power with strings and horns before. So that sounds like it'll be fun. All right, I'm coming. <laughs> so is it, a, is it a challenge for you at this age, at this point in your life, to sing the old Triumph songs? Oh, yeah, of course, yes. And, and in fact, like, for example, Magic Power was originally in the key of D, and it sounds pretty good in that key. It's a very guitar-friendly kind of key and stuff, uh, open guitar strings, all of those sorts of things. But I redid it in the key of A, so I dropped it down like a whole, either a fourth or a fifth, depending on which way you're looking at it. And but I, when it's in A, you can really kind of give it the Pete Townsend beat the crap out of the guitar treatment. So it's kind of fun to do it that way. And um, I went, okay, I'll do it that way. Now, lay it, I kind of had to do a little bit of the, you remember when Eric Clapton uh, redid Layla and turned it from yes. the, you know, screaming rock version into the very laid back swung kind of bluesy thing. 
I didn't go quite that far, but I kind of gave it the same treatment and dropped some of the melodies down a bit and made it a little easier to handle. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, hold on. There's really no way around it. You got to do it in the original key. But I, I, again, I'll sort of, I don't know if you ever saw Queen, you're maybe too young for this, but, but, you know, I saw Queen live a few times when they were touring back in the day. And Freddie would often sing melodies. He would transpose them and move them down. He wouldn't sing them in the original recorded, you know, keys. Uh, because, you know, after you've done three nights in a row, like, there's just no way you can hit the high notes anymore. So you got to start becoming creative, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, I I didn't know. I I only saw Queen once with Freddie. It was on the last tour, but I did on Hot Space. But I didn't know I mean, him being the singer that he was. I didn't even know he he had to do that at some point. But obviously, it's the norm now for a lot of acts that tour that uh, the singers get a bit older. And the reason why I brought that up to you is because and we're going to get into your book here in a second. But one of the things that I had gotten a call about uh, maybe a year or so less ago was that the producer, Mike Klink, got in touch with me and told me he was working on a Triumph tribute record, and he told me that he couldn't find named singers that could sing your stuff. He was The stuff that Gil sang, he could find singers for because it wasn't so high, but he said he couldn't find like enough people that would sing, go after your songs and be able to sing in, in that key, uh, original key on those songs. Yeah, no, it's true, and and... Uh, and I would, and when I talked to Mike, I said, "Well, you're going to have to find females. You know, that'll that might be part of your solution." Uh, and the other side of it is, you know, they're kind of looking for people that have made a name for themselves. But the world of rock, I mean, it kind of changed. You know, uh, after the Triumph era, there, the era came in with grunge and and Nirvana and and you know Eddie Vedder and Creed, and so all of the singers. It became this, you know, much darker, kind of heavier kind of sound, you know. And um, so you didn't get a new generation of guys that sang up there with, you know, me, Getty, Robert Plant, John Anderson, you know. And I can remember we, we once, uh, 83, we were out doing some uh, stadium shows and Journey was the headliner. And it's like Steve Perry even came to me and said, man, are you hitting high B's in that song? Are you, are you hitting a high D and a high E? And I'm going, oh, yeah. Every night, <laughs> he's going like, you're out of your mind. But, of course, I remember, you know, when I was a kid, I would go to see Deep Purple concerts and Ian Gillen, and they would do, like, Child in Time, and he would be hitting high A's. And I'm talking about, you know, uh, um, the note that sits at the uh, 17th fret of the E string of a guitar, and Ian Gillen would be doing this screaming head tone kind of thing, hitting these, and they were high A's. And I go, okay, well, you know, we don't really have a world like that anymore. But there's some metal guys that could do it. Maybe they were just going like, yeah, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, but, but you know, I, I always wonder about this too, Rick, with that kind of stuff. And I've asked singers this, like, okay, so back in 81 or whatever, you're singing Magic Power and you're much younger and you're doing that. And it's, you know, it's kind of comfortable for you or whatever. But in the back of your mind, are you saying to yourself, damn, if this thing becomes a hit in 40 years, I'm painting myself into a corner having to do it. <laughs> no, come on now, bud. You're talking about rock stars. Rock stars don't sit around thinking about things 40 years from now, you know. Like, right, right. Yeah, like you're living in the moment. And, um, right. and there's another part of you, of course, which is that egotistical kind of, 
you know, the testosterone of youth, you're going to live forever. You know, you're going to be able to do this right. forever. I can do this now. Why wouldn't I be able to do this forever? You know, so, <laughs> you know, you don't really, you know, people warn you about growing old and you're not paying any attention. <laughs> right. It's very true. So so let's talk about your book, Lay It on the Line. Um, it's out. I'm assuming it's out now, right? Is it available everywhere now? Oh. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they can get it at Amazon or they can get it at their local bookstore. Or, you know, it's on ECW Press. So, you know, there's there's probably, I don't know, a thousand ways you can order it online one way or another. But, yeah, the book is out. Yes. So I, I enjoyed it. I have it. I was on a plane over the weekend. I had a chance to get into most of it. And um, the, the first thing that struck me about it, Rick, was it is it's the format of it and the way you did it is a bit different than your traditional autobiography. When I was telling my audience about you coming on, I, I called the book an autobiography, but I said, but it's a bit different because the, the way you pace it, the formatting of it, and there's almost uh, elements of it where it almost becomes like, you know, if you want to be a musician or you want to know about this, where it's almost an advice book at some point where it's like your experiences, but relate in a different way. So so tell me about your approach to doing this versus the, you know, the traditional format of an autobiography. Yeah. OK. Well, I mean, first of all, I, I, I felt very strongly that I really only wanted to do this once. So, you know, uh, if I'm going to do more writing, and I love writing, and I think uh, I've written a book of poetry before this, I would hope that I might have a few more of those in me. I might even have a novel in me at some point. I'm not sure. But, of course, I always want to keep songwriting and and doing that. So uh, I will continue writing and being creative. When you decide you're going to do, you know, autobiography or biography or memoir, you know, you're going back into the past and you're bringing up the things from your life. And so I'm not really a backwards looking kind of creative person. I like to be moving forward. I like to be in this moment and be looking at the horizon going, Hey, I wonder what's up there. So that stuff, uh, as I approached the book, I was thinking, okay, well, you know, here's an example, the triumph chapter, which is called the triumph chapter. It's only one chapter in about 16. And as you described, there's ones that talk about being in the music business. There's ones that talk about uh, playing guitar and how much that means to me. And, And those things are like being a family man, being a dad, being a husband. Um, all of those things meant more to me than being a rock star. Um, And so they end up, and and of course I taught college for 20 years, you know, like my life was one where the early part of my week was about going into the college and teaching a few days. And then the weekends were like, okay, climb on a plane, fly out, go play some gigs, you know, come back home, uh, repeat, uh, ad infinitum. So, you know, um, that idea of, of teaching, it's always kind of been a part of me. And, um, as I was putting the book together, I was thinking, well, you know, there was one time where I wrote an article for, uh, I mean, I, I wrote for Guitar Player Magazine for, you know, 19 years. I can't remember how long, 13 years, something like that. I was in the band for 13. I think I wrote for the magazine for 14 or 15. I, I can't remember exactly. Anyhow, um, uh, I, but I wrote an article for a, a, a retailer, a music retailer here in Canada that was in their sort of yearly catalog. And it was like my top 10 hits for, for 
trying to teach musicians, if you want to have a career in the music business, this is what... And so I'd already distilled that knowledge down into a, a magazine article. I went, well, this should be included in some kind of chapter that's about that kind of thing, because I don't want the memoir to just be something that only has a value of... And I, believe me, I read a lot of memoirs and did research and stuff, and I, I hate the ones where the, you know, the guy essentially takes his day book and goes, you know, on Tuesday we were in... Ohio, and then on on Wednesday we climbed on the bus, and, we, <laughs> and you go, yeah, I don't really care. That's it doesn't have much value to me. It doesn't really have a lot of weight, you know. So I was looking for things that might have a little more meat on the bone, you know. Yeah, well, no doubt, and I I think it's going to be really. Um... For for Triumph fans, enjoy reading it. But just even if you're not the hugest Triumph fan, just your story and also people that maybe are aspiring musicians to learn the story a little bit and learn of your experiences and how varied they are. And, you know, one of the things I kind of took from this, Rick, is like as you laid out you getting into Triumph and how Gil and Mike came to see you and all of that, and they had already had something cooking and and then it seems like because you say in the book you were never in it for the sex and drug stuff you were in it for the music um, but it it, it I, I and tell me if I I got this wrong but it, it almost felt like like you got into Triumph the band took off to some degree but it really you you never really felt like you were going to be in it for the long haul it, you that you're almost kind of reluctantly in it for as long as you were do I have that right. Well, I mean, I, obviously in the early days, there was no reluctance. I was, you know, jumped in with both feet and both arms and, you know, a big fat head. And I was in there. And, and uh, you know, I think the story of that is that in the early days, the band was Three Musketeers, you know, all for one, one for all. And it really felt like that's what we were doing. And then after it had had success and started to climb, I do think that there were things like the very things that gave the band strengths, which was that I was kind of this creative writer, singer, guitar player kind of guy. Uh, the drummer Gil was really smart and really good at, at general management of the band, the the booking agency end of things, the live stage production end of things, that side of, of what the music business is like. And Mike was really good at radio and really good at marketing and promotion and and he was a pretty good sales guy, you know. So that that kind of stuff made it so that we we were kind of covering all the fronts. We didn't really need a manager, and we didn't. After making the record deals, we were self managed, and it was really the other guys that did most of the business. And I would be in the studio working on my own. And so these were the the strengths as as the band developed. But then as as successes started to happen. Uh, you know, and it was like, oh, Rick wrote these songs, and now Rick is getting played on the radio, and but Rick's videos get played on MTV, and you know, oh, you know, uh, and, I, and I'm in some ways, I think it's probably the same thing that happens when I don't know, in a, in much larger kinds of circumstances, you've got say the police, and you've got Sting, and it, it's looking like, well, the guy could write his own ticket if he wanted to, and then eventually he decides. I think I will. Like, you know, I'm I'm tired of having fistfights with Stuart backstage, you know, from time to time. Uh, and, and then, you know, I mean, even look at the Beatles, the, the biggest band of all time. And I think there was a resentment from Lennon that was like, oh, you know, Paul gets all the girls screaming for him and Paul gets the songs that go to number one for 10 weeks. And, you know, I'm always getting put on the B-sides and, and my songs deserve as much 
uh, notoriety, as much um, focus as his, you know, I'm going to go and have my own life. And George Harrison felt the same way, too. And, you know, um, I just think that's the story of, of bands in general. That's kind of what happens over time. So the very things that bring you success are also the things that start driving wedges into into what's going on, you know? Yeah, I mean, and you talk about that in the book, that that kind of became a problem where there's two, there were two lead singers in Triumph, Gil, the, the drummer, and yourself, but you're the guy out front. You're the guy that's uh, also playing guitar, and you're the guy whose songs and the ones that you sing were getting the bulk of the radio and the bulk of the success. So that led to, I mean, you actually told the story in the book, I think, I don't know if it was Ron Nevison or one of the producers that had gotten involved in you uh, with you guys and took a song and, and gave it to you that originally I think Gil was going to sing and that caused a bit of a problem. And, you know, I had heard, again, you're right, it's not an uncommon story. I remember... I think there was animosity with heart because the one number one song that they had Nancy sang, not Anne. And that was yeah. always a thing. So yeah. that kind of stuff is there. And you dealt, you know, you dealt with it. Uh, it seemed like throughout much, uh, much of the time in there, was that one of the bigger, cause you said a couple of times in the book when it came to triumph that you, there were there, before you actually did leave the band, you had thought about doing it much earlier and you were almost kind of staying in there a bit reluctantly so was that the biggest issue? I mean, I know that there was also this big, you owed the label $3 million. There was some business stuff that didn't go right as well. Yeah, yeah. So that, that word reluctance, you know, you've raised it again. And I think what happened is we got to about 84, like 83, we moved. We were trying to get away from RCA. We moved to MCA, and that created the huge, you know, unrecouped debt um, uh, and, and um I'd been left to my own devices making the Thunder 7 album uh, in, in the studio. And so there was a lot on that album that was complete fun for me, like the making of the Time Cannon, which is, you know, 55 tracks of lead vocals. And, and um, I, I had guitar piece. Mid, uh, Midsummer Daydream was on that album. And, and uh, there was a blues thing, Little Boy Blues. And, and, so I was on my own and I was getting to do these things. They were all kind of like B cuts or C cuts, but I was always the kind of guy that was of a mind that I liked albums because I kind of liked B cuts and I liked things that were off the beaten path, not, not the, the hits that were going to be the beaten path. And the record business was slowly but surely and radio too was turning into a beaten path kind of a thing where you put on an album and there, there had to be, you know, Def Leppard would have seven songs of the 10 that could all be singles or Brian Adams would have 10 out of 10 that could all, be, you know, so, and those things would become huge hits that like, that was the Nevison thing. You mentioned the heart album, you know, like, I, I don't know the, the year that, that, uh, the record company was deciding, Hey, Nevison would be a great guy to, for the triumph thing was because Nevison had done the trick with starship and done it with heart where they were, they weren't even songs that were necessarily written by the band. They were written by outside writers. Nevison would bring them to the band. He, he would do these uh, kinds of arrangements and, and productions that radio would love. And then you'd have your big hits, like We Built the City and, and you know, yeah, These Dreams and, and um, What About Love, you know, the, the huge hits. I think they sold like five million albums of that heart thing in, you know, one quarter you know, or one half of a year. And so that was what the industry was turning into. And I really, you know, you talk about reluctance. 
I was kind of reluctant to be in that kind of a band, in that kind of a world, chasing that kind of a thing. I was a guy that had put Suitcase Blues on the Just a Game album, and that's more kind of the story of, 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 of a big part of my career than, you know, the writing of somebody's out there, which I did kind of overnight because the record company went, hey, we, you know, we need a hit. We, we need a lead single. Can you can you write a lead single? I went, yeah, okay, I can write a lead single. Yeah, here, you know, somebody's out there. And it was the highest charting song Triumph ever had on Billboard. But, it, you know, w- was my heart in it? Yes, but, you know, not all of my heart because, you know, I really, I, I wanted to be an artist. You know, you sign a deal in it. The bottom line calls you a recording artist, and that that's kind of what I wanted to be. I didn't want to necessarily be a pop star, never mind a rock star, you know, um, and that was kind of what the business was, was turning into. Yeah. You know, um, the other thing that struck me about the Triumph uh, years, and then we'll, I want to hit you with a couple other things here, but the other thing that struck me about that, and it, it's something that I always felt too, so... I think Triumph's uh, level of success, and you'd probably agree with this, at least here in America, was different market by market because back in those days, independent radio stations existed and you could have people that were champions in one market and you'd drive the band a lot more, like for you guys, Texas, um, and certain areas and other areas where you didn't get radio. Now it's all consolidated. Everybody pretty much plays the same thing, but it wasn't like that back then. But you make the case, like with Triumph, it's pretty interesting because... The band certainly got big, and the band certainly got popular, cert- certainly in certain pockets, for sure. But you never, the band, as for as popular as it got, never went to that next mega level. And you reference that in the book, and you bring that up. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts as to why that is, why you didn't go to the, you know, the, the you got you got close, but you just never got over that next hump to the, the the huge level of of some of the other bands of that time. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons for it. Um, you know, not the least of which was that the band did have a kind of a schizoid uh, uh, thing that it was trying to be because of two singers. Whereas the bands that did do that, and you know, Journey would be a good example. You know, every record sound you go, you go, yeah, that's Steve Perry. You know, and I mean, if you think about it too. Journey was the kind of band where they had really highly skilled guys in the band that had a really good understanding of, okay, you know, our, our bed tracks, we got to get like Steve Smith's got to, we got to get him as a drummer here. Um, And, and they would replace members until they finally got to the point where they go, okay, this is the kind of stainless steel chromium spine version of the band now that the, 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 from a commercial point of view, it can't be denied. And the world was heading to that, you know, um, uh, Lang was turning the trick for Brian Adams, turning the trick for ACDC, turning the trick for uh, uh, Def Leppard, eventually for Shania Twain. Like, that guy had an understanding of, no, no, this is how the industry works. This is how radio works. This is what the public now wants. And uh, it's not not all the public, but enough of it that it's going to turn that trick of, you know, five times platinum, seven times platinum. It's going to find a mass market, you know. And in later years, there were bands like Nickelback that understood that um, and, and was able to do that. And as you say, we have this consolidation now where, 
you know, if if you get that clear channel thing, hey, you're you're rocking. You know, uh, they don't even call it clear channel anymore, but you know that's the idea. There's there's this consolidation of playlisting so that uh, you're going to get that. So that was already starting to happen, and Triumph was not really the kind of band that sat comfortably in that. I think the other thing too, which requires you know mentioning, is is that. The band was a. We would play live, and that would be something people would come and see it and go, "What a show! Like, whoa, what, what? A, I'm a Triumph fan now, man. Like, I, you know, I'm never going to miss them when they come to town. They're great. So we were good at selling concert tickets in places where we built it up, you know. And you, you kind of needed airplay and concerts at the same time in order to make a market happen like that. But there were some places, as you said, we never got any airplay, so we never went there. We went and toured uh, England and, and Scotland once, and then and I think it was like 80, 81, and we never went back. We, we went like, you know, wow, that was hard, and uh, small things, and people didn't really get what we're, at, what we're about. You know, we, we'd much rather go to San Diego <laughs> in the wintertime. You know, so we, we would only ever tour uh, the United States and Canada and we wouldn't really break other markets, whereas, you know, this large-scale thing you're talking about, you know, I mean, I was just reading the thing about McCartney going to Australia and doing a tour, and I'm going, oh, yeah. Like, the, you know, uh, uh, Dave Grohl seems to have, like, just a bottomless ambition and energy so that he tours Asia and, and Australia, and uh, he goes out with other bands, and he's, like, he's just constantly working. And... In my band, we had guys that you know, like I wanted to be at home with my kids. I wanted to, I wanted to go to parents' night. You know, I I wanted to uh, coach my kids playing, you know, neighborhood sports. Gil wanted to play golf. You know, Mike liked to go to Jamaica in the winters. So we weren't so consumed with the idea of we must keep driving this machine. You know, this rock and roll machine must be driven until we've sold 10 million records. Right. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that definitely sounds, you know, about right for my takeaway from the book as well. And yeah, there's something to be said for that because uh, you, you successfully held your family together and your marriage together, you know, for, for many, many decades. And you probably wouldn't have been able, been able to do that if you were, you know, hitting it as hard as some of these other people out there were doing. And I know that you said right from the get-go, that was something that was, that was really important for you. Um, where would you say, Rick, closing out on Triumph, and then I'm going to hit you with other, another couple quick things here, but as far as Triumph was concerned, where would you say for you personally was the, you know, the, the peak for you uh, in terms of the, you know, the best moment, the best record where you were happiest? Would you say it was around Allied Forces? Certainly, that was one of my favorite albums, uh, and the making of it. I mean, we built the studio, Metalworks, and then we were in there, and it, it, you know, it, the world was our oyster. You know, it was like uh, I loved that experience the 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 band writing, the pre production, the making of the record, the way the record ended up sounding, the songs we had on there. I was feeling like, yeah, the band has really come into its own. We've discovered what this band really and truly can be. You know. Uh, but the fallout of it, of course, was that after that one and then for Surrender, RCA was kind of going, yeah, we would like this band to be, you know, Rick out front and, and Rick singing all the songs. And, and Gil and Mike, they were not happy about that. They wanted out. You know, they, they wanted to get away from RCA. Um, 
because they did want to chase the, a much bigger thing. And RCA was going, look, we got you locked in. You know, um, you're just only going to get the recording budgets that you get. And uh, we think you're going to be sort of like a blue oyster cultish kind of band. We don't think you're going to turn the journey trick or the sticks trick or whatever, you know. So th- that was a big, th- there was a, a, a strong rub there. But uh, Allied, yeah, that, uh, you know, it, uh, creatively it was a really nice uh, moment. Uh, then the tour we did in 83 where we, uh, man, I played big outdoor shows. I got jammed on stage with uh, Sammy and uh, Sammy Hager and Ted Nugent, and, and we did those journey shows. and. Big big stadiums, you know. Uh, we did the US Festival in the, in on the Memorial Day weekend of that. We and the, the night before we played the US Festival, by the way, we had played in Florida uh, up the bill from a ZZ Top thing in a, in a, you know in a sta- so that summer was just full of these you know crazy great stadium shows. And the thing I loved about that, and which became a kind of a uh, like a hallmark of triumph was that we played the US Festival in the afternoon. There was no lights. There was no flamethrowers. There was no flash pots. We just got up and played our tunes for an hour. And that became a kind of a legacy thing for triumph. And I went, see, guys, we, we could have just been a rock band. You know, like we could have just got up there and just been musicians and played our stuff. We didn't need all of the bells and whistles. But, you know, I think. For the other guys, they really felt like, no, 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 it's not Triumph unless it's got the bells and whistles, you know. Now, so I would say, and I mentioned earlier, because your your question is about uh, highlights, you know, being left in the studio for the guys were out trying to find a new record deal and going around and they'd been through the whole legal battle with RCA. And so I'd been left to my own devices for a long time. And so the making of Thunder 7 was kind of one where I went, hey, you know, as a recording artist, you can really take advantage of the studio as this, you know. And I mean, I think every artist that has a record deal does arrive at that point at, at some at some juncture in their career. But that was around 86 for me, you know. Uh, and, and then, you know, 87, 88, I, c- I could have done without it. <laughs> that, that wasn't as much fun. There's, there's really no highlights from there. So, yeah, yeah. You know what I was interested in the book too when you when you left Triumph of course they continued for a brief time and did another record and brought Phil X in to replace you briefly but um the thing that uh I I thought was interesting is that you were approached about uh, some other potential uh gigs and joining up with some other things one of those was possibly joining the band Boston and also being approached about possibly being a part of the damn Yankees. What can you tell the audience about, about those two approaches and what your thoughts were about them at the time? Obviously you didn't end up doing either. No, no. And, and there were actually three, you left out the Asia one, but yeah. Asia, like the, right. Yeah. 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 The Boston one came first. Uh, if, if my recollection serves and I, it was like, I got a call and the guy said, Hey, you know, uh, Tom would be interested in, in uh, maybe having you join the band. And I went, Whoa, uh, and, and it was like he wants you to come down and be in the studio, and he wants to, you know, just bounce some things off you. And I'm thinking, oh, he wants to co-write. He wants to. He really wants to have somebody into the band. This, that sounds awesome. And I, I flew down and I had a great time with Tom and and enjoyed the, my day in the studio with him. And we went out for dinner and and then a couple of days later, I got a call from the guy and he goes, well, congratulations, you've got the job. You know, they want you to sing and play guitar in the touring band for the summer. And I went. Wait, what? 
I, th- I thought you were making an album. He goes, oh, no, no, the album's finished, really. Because uh, what I'd done was sort of sing parts on, you know, multi-track uh, tape in his basement studio, the famous, you know, Tom Schultz basement studio. Where, and um, anyways, I, I was flattered that, I, you know, that they were offering, but I didn't want to step from being in one rock band to, to just being in somebody else's rock band again and, and kind of just being a sideman, you know, getting hired to go out for the summer. And I went, oh, no, I, I pass. You know, I, I'd rather be doing my own sort of humble little thing. Uh, and I think from a profile point of view, it probably would have been good for me. It might have been good for for, for Tom, you know, um, and, and the whole Boston, uh, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, franchise <laughs> that he owns and runs, you know. Uh, and then the other ones, is, it's kind of the same story where I got a call early and it was because my name had been out there. I think the first album I had made for the America was Charisma Records, the Absolutely album. And then Charisma, the record came out and they went bankrupt. And so literally it was like overnight that record just started, you know, swirling down the toilet. And then I think everybody that was sort of in the business and in particular John Kolodner at Geffen, I think John went, hey, that guy's a free agent again. Um, uh, so I think the conversation had maybe been, uh, Bud Prager was managing Ted and maybe he even knew something about, I don't know, Tommy or whatever. I got a call from, uh, I think it was, uh, Jack Blades and he kind of pitched me about this thing that they were doing. And I went, well, Jack, and I think I'd met Jack, you know, back in the day, Night Ranger, and we'd been on the bill on some of these big summer outdoor show things out on the West Coast. So I'd met all the guys. And and, and I like Jack. He's, he's, you know, tremendous energy, really cool guy, you know, great, great singer, uh, really good stage personality kind of dude. And so anyways, he, he pitched me and I went, hey, well, who you got? And he goes, well, I got Tommy Shaw and, and, and Ted Nugent. And I went... Jack, you already got more guitar than you're ever going to need. If you're in a band with Ted Nugent, I don't know how you're going to find any wiggle room there. <laughs> you know, especially for a, a guy like me. You know, I I'm the kind of guy where. Plus, I mean, they ended up calling the damn Yankees, and I'm just a Canuck. You know, so but what are they going to do? Have a crazy Canuck in with the damn Yankees? I don't think that's going to fly. You know, so I kind of I passed on that one. And the Asia thing, similar story. Uh, Wetton and Carl Palmer called me at different times, and and um, it was because they were going to go out. They were had a greatest hits album coming out, and they were going to have uh, some big outdoor shows. And I think the guy that had played with them on the last couple of tours was Pat Thrall or somebody of that nature. And uh, but he wasn't available, so they were looking for somebody. And so you know these fellows with you know very proper British accents, you know, and they're giving me a call in the and I went, you guys, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not looking to be a sideman in somebody's band. You know, thank you. I, I'm, I'm honored but that you ask, but right. that, that ain't my thing. Um, last thing, there is a funny story in the book about your most humbling gig, which basically equates to you playing in a grocery store. Can you... Uh, <laughs> Can you tell, can we close on you telling my audience that story? Because I thought that was funny. Yeah. The greatest gigs of all time. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I, over the years I'd always had endorsement deals with guitar companies and, and, you know, I'm not going to name any names here, but, um, I, you know, so I would from time to time go out and do little mini tour things where I would be 
you know, they'd have a new product line of stuff out and, you know, they want me to go out and be playing on some new guitars or whatever. Um, so I, I was in Kingston, Ontario, and um, it would often be in these circumstances, the guy that runs the local music store would decide, oh, yeah, Rick Emmett, come in, do a guitar seminar. That'd be fantastic. Uh, but the guy, it was summertime, and he'd bought so much uh, product for his big sale that he was going to have in conjunction with his, you know, I don't know, weekend of seminars or whatever he was, whatever he was doing, uh, that the store was filled up with boxes and boxes of stuff. And so they couldn't really do it in store, but it was summertime. He goes, that's okay. We're going to have a nice big stage across the street in the parking lot of the, you know, Grossateria, the giant, you know, big, big box grocery store. And it was a nice stage. When I got there, it was a nice stage. I could see it had like a, a roof over it, and they had a big PA set up and everything, and it wouldn't chairs. But it was absolutely pissing rain. It was like a complete tornado kind of day. And I'm going, well, that ain't going to happen. And the guy goes, no, 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 don't worry. We, we've got, you know, plan C well, well, there's a there's a coffee shop in the in the grocery store up on the mezzanine level, and uh, we've got a little PA set up there, and so you can we'll, we'll do it in there. And I'm going, well, okay. <laughs> and so I go ahead and conversation. Now, there's no one there. Like the, there's there's very few people in the grocery store on this I don't know Friday or Saturday night, whatever. I think it was probably a Saturday, because it was there was this incredible so and it was like hail so and it had a metal roof so you could hear the hail banging off this metal roof only about you know 10 feet above my head when i was up at the mezzanine level and i'm sitting there now and you know tuning my guitar and getting ready to do this there's only the guy from the music store the guy running the pa the girl in the hairnet hairnet that sells the coffee and the donuts and you know I, I, if I turned around and looked over the railing at my back, I could look right down into the produce section and I could see the ladies squeezing the Jaffa oranges. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not kidding. It was like, and meanwhile, I'm, I'm going to start playing, and there's all this thing where it's like, the Muzak is still going in the store, and then every now and then, you know, it's like, car, clean up on aisle six, clean up on aisle six. <laughs> and I'm going like, okay. Could we get them to turn off their main PA just when I'm going to do my thing, you know? And it was it was very, very humbling, you know. Total um, spinal tap. Sounds total oh, spinal Oh, man, tap. it was just, you know. Anyhow. <laughs> and then after it was over, I had to get in my car and drive home in this monsoon, uh, you know, like for three hours in the car going, well, that was something, wasn't it? <laughs> that was, you think that about was it. really, really something. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what, this is just a few of the things you can read about. I don't want to give it all away, but there's great stuff in Rick's book. Again, it's laid on the line, a backstage pass to rock star adventure, conflict and triumph. Rick Emmett's book. It's out there now, as you just heard him say. And um, Rick, just in closing, what can you, uh, triumph as a band? I mean, I know that the documentary came out and all of that, but the idea of ever playing together again is pretty much a dead issue, right? I mean, we're not going to see Triumph again live, right? Uh, I I doubt it, you know. And I mean, the problem with uh, you know, you should never say never. And and um, that sometimes things pop up where it becomes too delicious to say no. Like you know, me going to Sweden to play for New Year's, you know. Like 
these things do happen. But there was recently a, a Walk of Fame event that occurred here in Toronto, and uh, you know, I, I got a really lovely invitation. Did I want to come and sing a Rush song? Uh, Kim Mitchell was getting inducted, and they were going to do the song "Battle Scar" that you know Getty had sung, and there'd been like two bass guitars and two drummers and. And, and they said, you know, would you want to come in and sing the Getty Lee part? And, oh, man, I was sorely tempted, you know. But then I sat down and I listened to the song again after all these years, and I went, yeah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like, yeah, that's, uh, I don't think I can cut that anymore. So <laughs> you, you're probably right. It's It's probably, you know, a dead issue, but, you know, you never really want to say die, right? You always want to kind of keep the flame flickering. Did you get offers? Did you guys get offers off of the documentary coming out a few years ago that, that there was interest or would some people knock yeah, on your I'm, door off of that? I, I'm sure there were, and I'm, I'm sure that the other guys get them. Like, I don't really get them because I'm not really part of it. You know, like the triumph thing is it's gills and and I think Mike has uh, kind of been struggling health-wise lately. And so I, I think he's even sort of out of the picture. I was over at Metalworks at the studio uh, last week shooting some video because the uh, pickup company that I work for, or MJS that I have a deal with, they wanted to shoot some stuff that they can use for, you know, things on their website and videos from YouTube. And it just so happens that I've been working up my own uh, jazz guitar pieces on a Telecaster guitar that they'd custom... I got custom made with their pickups in it, and I went, yeah, yeah, I'll bring. I'm like that sounds great, and so I had I played a little excerpts from this thing called Ten Telecaster Tales, which is, you know, the next album I'm going to make, and and um, I've been working on the pieces and stuff. So I was there, and I got to set with Gil, and and we talked, and I hadn't seen him for a long time, and it was great. We were able to catch up, but you know, I mean. Uh, I, 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 we don't really talk too much about Triumph. I, I don't think too much of that business. Gil is the kind of guy that he's always got 14 uh, fires going, and his fingers are in all of them. And I don't know how he does that if he only has 10 fingers, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, he, he's, he's got his fingers in, in, a, in a lot of pies that are cooking on a lot of fires. How's that? <laughs> right, right. And is Mike okay? You, I mean, not to get not to get into his business, but you said he's got some health stuff. Is he okay? I, you know, you reach a certain age, Eddie, and uh, you know things start, <laughs> you know, wearing out. Uh, I have my own problems, you know. Uh, but well, yeah, in I Mike's know. case, I think it was more that um, just the, like bronchial stuff, and, and it was like a lingering cold that he was having a hard time getting rid of. So I talked to him on the phone and. You know, he he wouldn't sound 100%. So it's hard for me to imagine him sitting in a meeting and somebody going, yeah, so we would like you to come and do, you know, a dozen shows in the Far East. And Mike going, yeah, yeah, I'm up for that. Like Mike right, going, right. <laughs> I don't think so. Right. <laughs> and I got you. I got you. Yeah. Well, listen, man, it's always great to talk to you. And uh, I'm I'm glad to hear that you're well. And congratulations on the book. Everybody check it out. It's out there now. And uh, you got music coming as well. You got more stuff coming on your own. Yeah, that uh, 10 Telecaster Tales. It, you know, I haven't got the masters completed yet, but I've been, you know, starting the project and I've got everything's written um, it takes a little bit longer for me to get things under my hands now than it used to, but uh, that one's on the way, and I've written some tunes. I've also got a package coming out in a bit called Diamonds, 
which is a repackaging of the stuff that I did. After I left Triumph, I had three albums for an indie label called Duke Street, and uh, I got those masters back. And so I kind of went around, and I have some friends that are, you know, in in the business of putting out vinyl things, et cetera, et cetera. So a company called uh, um, uh, Merchant Motion, which is Rock Paper Merch Online, they're doing a thing where this package is coming out. It's sort of the harder rock tracks, some of the demos that are going to be like the bonus tracks on it, and that's coming out in a couple of weeks, I think. So yeah, that's called Diamonds, and. Um, yeah, and so you know, I, I keep busy. This the stuff keeps uh, resurfacing from time to time. There's another project I got going where I wrote two two songs with a guy named Don Brightup. He's got a band called Monkey House, and it's a very uh, jazzy, bluesy, steely Danish kind of vibe. And so I might take some of the old tracks and repackage them and put them with some of the stuff that I've been writing with Don. But we'll see. That might be a year or a year and a half away. Who knows? Well, sounds like you got a lot of good stuff cooking, and uh, it's always great to visit with you, Rick. Best to the family, and hopefully I get a chance to see you soon. Everybody pick up Rick's book, lay it on the line out there right now. Thanks for the time, man. That's great. Good talking to you. I enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, thanks to Rick Emmett. Check out his book. It's out now, and always great to visit with him, and always appreciate him uh, coming on the show and being so candid and honest about the past and the future with his band, Triumph. NetCredit is here to say yes, because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partners. NetCredit, credit to the people. National Outlet Shopping Day is back. Join us June 8th and 9th at Simon Premium Outlets nationwide. Score thousands of can't-miss deals from brands you love all weekend long. They've got up to 65% off every day, and the National Outlet Shopping Day deals are even better. Visit premiumoutlets.com slash NOSD to find a premium outlet near you. That's premiumoutlets.com slash NOSD. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader. Promised you a second interview this week, and I'll bring it to you right now. Joey Tempest, lead singer of the band Europe. Here's an update from him on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Joey, how are you, bud? I'm good, Eddie. Good to talk to you again. You too, man. It's been a little bit, and uh, congratulations on 40 years of Europe. I mean... Uh, a tremendous accomplishment, which I'm sure when you were starting the band out, you had no no idea that in 2023 you'd be making new music and touring and still going, right? No, that's the case, isn't it? You're young and you're bulletproof there for a few years. You think maybe a year ahead, but you never dream that you'd be like you know, these other bands that you've seen being around a long time. But here we are, and we are the same guys. We met when we were teenagers, and we're so lucky 
to be touring and doing a 40 anniversary tour and it's it's quite amazing you know i'm i'm curious about that actually because of course i know the band and i'm a fan of the band but i don't know the deep deep history from way back when um the lineup you have now that's going out and playing 40 years is it the all the same guys that you started with there's a there are one or two variations there if you get technical yeah if you get technical yeah we started in 83 and we were a four piece and we had Tony Reno on drums on the first album and the second album. So uh, Mick, Michele and Ian Haugland, the drummer and the keyboard player came in, in about 84, 85. So they are, yeah, they're, they're 40 years in the band. So, but this is the, the lineup that went on the Wings of Tomorrow tour and that went on uh, the, uh, fi- went on to record the final countdown album and, uh, from then on just and then John Norum left for a few albums but he's been back longer than he's been you know the first time so it's it's the same brothers now yeah no there's that period with Key Marcello I know on guitar and then John yeah. came back but it's amazing man it's true because that as you know and you know we've talked I mean you and I are uh, very much into a lot of the same music that we we grew up with and stuff and it's incredible because there's so few bands that Beyond those little changes, as you as you mentioned, that that happened over the forty years plus, uh, there's so few bands that hold together a lineup like you guys have. What do you attribute that to, Joey? Well, it's a little bit of that thing. We went to see shows together. I think that cemented. We are from the same neighborhood. So me, John, and John, we met when we were like we're talking fourteen, thirteen, fourteen. And we were in different bands back then and we saw each other play and we just started hooking up with each other because we, we felt like that guy's the best in town and then maybe they thought I was the best in town. So we got, let's start a band and we started Force, but we, we didn't stop there. We went to shows together. We went to see Thin Lizzy when they came to town, Rainbow, Deep Purple when they came back with The Perfect Strange. We were there on, on, in fifth row with our fists up. You know, we... And we studied those guys. And, and uh, I mean, David Coverdale will say it to me now. You've stole my microphone, booze. Yeah, I have. <laughs> and he knows it. You know, we, we studied and, and we have that in common. So we went home after these shows, had a drink and just dream and listen to albums and together. So I think that uh, still we can talk about those things after the shows today. So I think that has something to do with it. Also, the love of the same music, like, like you say, we, we like some of the same music too. And that helps. But I don't know. It's hard to say. They're great people as well. You know, some they like being in the band. That's a secret as well. Some people have a hard time going on tour, being amongst the same people and compromise all the time. It's you know, people are different. But these guys tend to okay. The biggest cause here is the name Europe, and we go forward and we keep it together. And when someone says let's go on tour and go in the studio, we do it. So that's it's a part of it's personalities as well, Eddie. You know, and we're lucky that everybody seemed to think the same way. Well, then that's just it, because a band is just not a musical partnership, but you spend so much time in close quarters with each other, and you've got to be able to click and be able to coexist in that way, too. And we both know that there are so many acts out there, and I know many of them, where the guys in the band are in separate quarters and won't tr- they won't even stay in the same hotel in the same city when they're on tour. So there's a lot yeah. of that out there. So you've got to, but, but it, I, I would imagine it's such a better working situation when you can connect with bandmates for decades 
on a personal level and a friendship level as well as a musical level, that would really be the ultimate situation. It sounds like that's been the case for Europe. Yes, it has. And, and now if we have an argument now, we try to head it on and talk about it. Because that's also a problem. A younger band would could be a small thing even, Eddie, you know, and then that becomes huge because you have the ego and you're younger and it it just blows out of proportion. And one guy just takes off. Uh, And then it's gone too far and you can't bring it back. But now, if something would happen now between me and John or or anybody else, we would like, oh, let's talk about this now because we don't want this to become a thing. So you learn as well. And that comes with being feeling appreciative of this situation and feeling lucky that we have this job. So we don't want to rock the boat now. <laughs> it's too late for that. Yeah, no doubt. You know, John, I, I mean, Joey, I'm, uh, I'm curious. When you were coming up in Sweden, I mean, you mentioned a couple bands that I love and many others do in, in Purple and Lizzie. But the thing with those bands, which always uh, I always try to tell my audience here in the U.S. and Canada, where I broadcast to, is that those bands, like here in America, those two bands are looked at for one song or maybe two songs they they aren't they they don't hold nearly the same stature that they do in Europe and other parts of the world and i've said that this to my audience so many times if you talk to people who are from europe um they will tell you what a band like Deep Purple or Thin Lizzy means to them. It's way more than the boys are back in town and smoke on the water. Can you talk a little bit about that from your perspective growing up in Sweden, what those bands mean to people and to rock fans in that part of the world? Sure, sure. So uh, Deep Purple, it's probably for us, they they almost did the Blueprint album with Made in Japan. So we were, you know, having a party. The parents were away. We were young uh, teenagers, and and we listened to Made in Japan, and and we listened to the expression and the the, the musicianship and how they played, and 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 it was so great because it, they were so young actually on that album as well, and so we felt like, wow, they're so young, they can do this, we can do this. But the Purple also they 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 had different styles in their music. It was a bit of jazz. It was a bit of soul. It was a bit of rock and roll. And they always, they never listened to anybody. They just, albums were different and they moved in different ways, but they also picked great musicians. I mean, Richie Blackmore is just a legend and, and the singer, Ian Gillan and Ian Pace. When Ian Pace, we tend to follow the, 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 the musicians as well. So we knew Ian Pace. So then we went to see Gary Moore with Ian Pace. And then we like, you follow Ian Pace through, through other acts and you realize there's a connection, um, Thin Lizzy, I don't know, they were just amazing with their guitars and the melodies and the lyrics from Phil in it. And when we saw them play, Phil was so great with the audience and we felt like we were his friend and it was like, it felt like we belong in this concert hall and the music, there's so many more songs than Boys Are Back in Town. I mean, that is great, but, but there's Bad Reputation, for instance, or, or, and there's so many examples. But we saw them year after year after year, and maybe that is something, because Thin Lizzy did not tour a lot in the States at all. I think they did one or two, and they, they cut one short, I think, one tour. And yeah. I think that has something to do with it, Eddie. I mean, you, you probably know, you probably have your own take on this. You've written books about it and stuff. I mean... It could be could be the fact that they didn't go over here, uh, go over there so much. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, and I've talked to Scott Gorm about it. He's a friend, and he's been on the show a lot of times. and And he he feels like there was this one tour where they were just about to break, and it might have been around the time of jailbreak. And he said that 
he felt that Phil, uh, Phil had, uh, well, we all know that Phil had his demons and his issues yeah, and yeah. he had, he had gotten uh, hepatitis and he was hospitalized and he couldn't yeah. travel. And Scott has always said to me that he felt like that that was a really pivotal point because they were just on the cusp of getting ready to break. And then when they had to cancel that tour and didn't come over, he felt like that was really um, something they never quite recovered from. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, like, like we said, then Lizzie, um, they had Rosalie as well, which was more like a rock song, more like an American song. There was, there was different elements to them. And I think Dylan liked ZZ Top. I think he liked that band a lot. So there, there was connections, but I have to add though, that Lizzie was also this band that had those melodies almost, almost back to classical or um, kind of melancholic old melody things in, in the music. Whereas I see America as a young rock and roll country. It, it, it may have been something there too, but I have to say, and Liz is one of my favorite bands and ever, and it was John Oram. We used to sit, um, his stepdad had a record collection that was so big. So when I met John Oram, we used to go to his place the step that worked in, in Sony at Sony and, and CBS, it was in those days. And he played me, you know, Journey, the UFO, and Lizzie. I've heard them a bit, but John was like, listen, you got to listen to this, man. This is amazing. And, you know, if we start a band, this has got to, it's got to be like this. And, and we, and that sort of uh, got me into writing more songs like that. So John inspired me to write like that. He didn't write so much. He was just mesmerizing me with his guitar playing. I mean, to hear, John Norum and Ingrid Malmsteen was the two guys around. And the, there was a, a tape of Ingrid Malmsteen floating around, his first demo tape, and we listened to that. It's like, wow, this is amazing. He even called me one time, Ingrid, and said, hey, maybe we should work together. But then I had John, and John was just, he had that little blues element, little feel element in his playing that differentiated him from Ingrid a little bit. So, and John and me were like brothers and, and uh, but anyway, we listened a lot to Thin Lizzy, and there's so many songs that are amazing. I mean, it's great craft. Be, I'm just curious, Joey, being from Sweden and growing up in in Sweden, I, I, you still live in London now? Are you still are you in London now? Yeah. Still? Yeah, but, I've been but in London for for uh, for since oh my goodness, a long, long, long time. I lived abroad longer than I lived in Sweden, but I have my family there. My mom's still alive; she's there. My brother. And the band is in Stockholm, so we rehearse and record that quite a lot. Did you? Well, I'm I'm curious what the scene was like for Europe as coming up as a band trying to make it. What was the scene like in Sweden? And also, you mentioned Ingve being from there. Did you see him before he came to America? Did you see him playing? Like, was he was he on the club circuit as a really young kid? Did you cross paths with him much? Yeah, we did. Uh, John Levin, the bass player of Europe, and John Norum, they knew him better than me, but I met him as well. I went down to his uh, rehearsal place. He was sitting in this dungeon cellar practicing 12 hours a day, he, and, and we, we, we loved him, and we loved his playing. And those demos I talked about earlier, they circled around way before he went to America. And just, I think, uh, we went partying with him, and we talked to him a lot. And, uh, yeah, we, we were friends, and we saw him play before all that happened and it was quite amazing he he was clearly going to go places but we had our thing in Upland Svesby our suburb we had our thing with our John me and John John and 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 it was just we had our thing we didn't want to disturb that so we we went our own path 
But I remember right. talking to Ingley, and he said he was going to go over and he got a deal in America. And I said, yeah, I think he mentioned, would you like to come with me and stuff? But I had, I had Europe, and um, and John was my best buddy, so that was it. <clears throat> yeah, and John uh, John Norum, obviously a phenomenal guitar player in his own right, yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Um, you, uh, Joey, when was the first time that Europe played in America? What was the, when was the very first time you came over? Do you remember what the very first show was and when, and what, when you came over? Was it for the final countdown or did you come over previous to that? No, we didn't come up previous, but we did, we did some sort of um, convention, I think, uh, for CBS. It was kind of a big deal. Everybody was there. Yetnikov, Motola, everybody was there. And uh, I remember doing that for, I think that would have been the first and then we came over for the final countdown tour. Uh, I remember, I think we may have started in uh, San Francisco or around that area. I think I remember meeting Vince Neil um, and uh, the guys. Yeah, the guys from from what the crew came to the show. Guy from Night Night. Guys from Night Ranger came to the show. Uh, yeah, Were you we headlining when you, when you came yeah. when you came over for the final countdown the first time you came to America? We all know MTV was new at that time. The song was and still is huge. All of that happened, but um, was were you headlining when you first came to America to tour? Yeah, actually, Eddie, we did an evening with Europe. We had we had Herbie Herbert, uh, Journey's management. He signed us on, and we we worked with him. He arranged. We had a plane, and we we flew and. We did an evening with Europe in big theaters. It was quite cool. And uh, we had a great experience, um, the first tour. It was a great time to come to America. It was one of the dreams when we were kids to to be a touring band like Deep Purple or anybody. I mean, Aerosmith or anything like that. These guys, they tour all the time. We'd like to do that. Coming to America was a big deal for us. And and, uh, Herbie, Herbert, the manager then, he, he had Journey, of course, and me and John Norm really loved uh, Neil Sean and Steve Perry. And, and so that was all I could dream. It was great to come to America finally and have a management in, in San Francisco. And yeah, it was pretty cool. So, so the, the final countdown comes out in America and the song and the album and the video and MTV and all of this really drives this thing. And, and that, so I imagine that was the catalyst as to why you were able to come to the U.S. for the first time and be able to make your first American tour be a headlining tour. So it was probably, you know, after all that stuff hit, were you, you were aware, obviously, that the song connected here and connected around the world, but were you uh, aware of this thing that we had here called MTV that was driving everything? Yeah, I, I got to know it through the office, the Black Rock CBS uh, office in, in New York. And they expect because the MTV office, it wasn't that far away. They actually, they brought us over there one day. <laughs> you know, they was like, check out, this is MTV. And they'd love for you to make great videos and big videos. You know, that era was, was kind of, it was a cool thing. It was a new thing. Um, but just to backtrack a little bit with CBS, yeah, we, 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 um, we had some success. We were number one over in Holland where everything usually started over here. And Final Countdown started to go up in the charts, the album and the song. And uh, we were signed to America, but it happened in Europe first. That's the whole thing. But then America realized, hang on a second, these are our signing. And they're number one everywhere in Europe. Let's do this. And then they pushed the button at CBS. And that's, come over here, let's do this. The thing is, they started it by introducing Kevin Elson as a producer, Jonas producer, and 
and signed me. I went to New York first time. I was 21 years old. Went up to the office to meet them all. I mean, Matola, everybody. I was just a little kid. And I played, we played, um, I think we played Scream of Anger, maybe from, from Wings uh, and Stormwind, Dreamer, Open Your Heart, those songs. And they really liked it. And they, they're like, oh, these guys are interesting because Bon Jovi has been signed, obviously, with, with another label. And I think they were looking for something similar. So they signed us, but they didn't really work it. So Europe happened first, and then we came over. Yeah, and you mentioned Bon Jovi. I don't know if you're aware of that, but when, when you first came on the scene, when Europe first came on the scene here in America, there were a lot of comparisons between the two bands. Because even you, because people said you, you resembled him and uh, and the way you looked and, and everything like that. It was that era of the videos and the certain yeah. looking, good-looking front guys and all that sort of stuff. So there was a lot of comparison to that, but you guys very much overcame that i think because as much as i like bon jovi and know bon jovi uh, i always you know i th- i think it was an easy comparison to maybe make visually but if you really listen to the record i think you guys were coming from a little bit of a different place yeah it was different even though possibly we had i think john likes uh um Dizzy as well i think there were some some connections there but it was slightly different musically we, we met them a few times over the years a great guy so but it was more the magazines over here. They were crazy. They were pinning me and John up next to each other and stuff. It was crazy. Over oh, there. is that right? Um, yeah. <laughs> Did you win any of those battles, Joey? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was when I met John, it was fine. Well, the first time we met was actually Top of the Pops, one of the biggest shows in the 80s in the UK. If you were number one at Top of the Pops, you, you, that was it. That was crazy big. And we were number one once. And we, I, I, maybe some other times, I don't remember what. We were number one with the final countdown. And Living on a Prayer, I think, was number seven. And they came into the studio and they were like, oh, you guys. It was <laughs> that was the first time we met. And But since then, we met many times. We're all cool. And I, I, I think they've done, I mean, what would the planet be without bands like those guys? You know, Bon Jovi. Definitely no doubt. I mean, it's great. It's great. Yeah, no doubt. Well, it's great that you're still going. It's great that Europe is still going. It's great that it's still the key guys, the guys we all know and love. And um, the the thing, you know, just, just bringing this full circle here, the thing that I most love about what you're doing is that your recent records, some of these bands we talk about obviously didn't stand the test of time. They didn't last. There's been a ton of lineup changes. Maybe they're, some of the members just can't do it anymore. Whatever the case may be, some of them don't even bother to make new music. In the case of Europe, uh, as you know, I love some of your uh, recent albums. Uh, War of Kings was a recent favorite of mine. It's just an incredible record. So you guys have um, really just continued to pump out some great stuff. And and uh, and now I know we have this brand new song, Hold Your Head Up, which came out uh, just a few days ago along with a music video. So tell us about this new song, and is this going to lead to an eventual eventual New Europe album? Thank you, Eddie. Um, yeah, we, we took a new start didn't we 2004 and we've done six new albums since we started again we're touring and and we're having a blast we went into the studio yeah about a few months ago and recorded one new song and over the pandemic there was some extra time i managed to get some really good ideas down and everybody loved this idea so we hooked up with ghost producer klaus orland and we managed to record this in between shows and and it turned out really really good and and uh yeah it's just come out and uh, it feels kind of fresh. And yeah, we like to 
stay fresh and try to be innovative and have fun with it, you know. Well, yeah. And do you plan to make a full record or did you just do this as yeah, a test we, maybe with the yeah. producer? Yeah, no, we wanted to check out Klaus, obviously. Whether we're going to work with him or not, we're discussing. But yes, we are throwing ideas around. We have some great ideas. And yes, we will we will make a new album. But this was something we wanted to have out now because we have a documentary coming out as well from the very, from the suburbs of Stockholm out to the world. We found some old VHS tapes from, I think some of it's from San Francisco as well when we, when we record the final countdown in the studio with Kevin and and the hotel rooms in Japan when we were like very young and backstage from 83, 84. And we managed to put this documentary together with people people like from Ghost are in it, uh, Benny Anderson from ABBA's in it, talking. And we're just honored that people wanted to take part of this documentary. It's coming out beginning of next year. And, and so we wanted this song to be part of that documentary. That was also part of the plan. And, and this 40th anniversary tour we're doing, yeah, it's just um, we were lucky getting this song together because it's it seems like it has some some legs, so we're happy. Yeah, no, so it sounds like the song is more of a of a catalyst or or a, a marker for the 40th anniversary, the touring that you're doing now, and the coming documentary, and then you'll revisit what you want to do as far as a full record at some point. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. But we do have some really great songs cooking. Obviously, Hold Your Head Up will be on there as well. So, yeah, we're, we're right now in the middle of touring. And then beginning of next year, we'll be in the studio again and, you know, doing some new ones. Yeah, I'm looking at your schedule. I didn't realize I just pulled up your site that you're actually on tour now and you're yeah. on a day off and you have, you're have you playing Germany tomorrow. You played Italy last night, right? Yeah, that's right. But I, you know, I had to take a day off to do Eddie, you know, why not? <laughs> well, I appreciate that, man. It means a lot. And the last thing, yeah. and then I'll let you go and get back to your day, your evening off at this point there. Um, uh, is, right, do you, do, do you plan to get over at all to the U S and play live shows? Do you, do, would you like to do yeah. a run here? Is there some talk of that maybe for next year? Yeah, we're looking, we're really looking. And we were actually booked 2020 when the pandemic hit, it was all set. Was all set with Journey and Kansas. Uh, no, sorry, with with Foreigner and Kansas, and it was a it was a huge tours planned, and and then it all fell apart, and and uh, it didn't happen again. So we're looking to get something like that. Maybe go with some some other bands and have have a fun again in America. That would be great. And yes, we are looking. So let's hope something comes together. Yeah, and I'm a huge fan of documentaries, especially music documentaries, so I can't wait to see the one on you guys, and uh, I know the audience will look forward to that as well. I'm sure here in America we'll be able to see it on one of the streaming platforms or something like that. Is that the plan? Yes, absolutely. It, it will be, it will be uh, available, and hopefully a lot of people can enjoy it. Well, I'll get the word out when it is. Joey, uh, I'll let you get back to your evening. I appreciate the time. It's always great to talk to you. And uh, everybody check out the new song from Europe. Again, it's out now. Video as well for Hold Your Head Up. And fingers crossed we'll get some dates in the U.S. soon. Uh, best to the guys and uh, safe travels, Joey. I will. Thank you. Great talking to you, Eddie. Thank you so much. You too. Take care. Well, in my opinion, Europe has made some of their best new music recently, like their last two, three records among the best stuff they've done, in my opinion. And, uh, of course, there's that new single out that Joey talked about and new album coming down the line and a documentary on the band, which I'm very much looking forward to seeing. Of course, being a big fan of Docs, I can't wait to hear 
and see that when that is released. Thanks to Joey Tempest for checking in. Thanks earlier to Rick Emmett for checking in. And thank you for listening to my podcast. I appreciate it. Remember, new episodes hit every Thursday. Anywhere you get your podcast, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss one. And again, everything you just heard originated live on the radio on my Sirius XM radio show, Trunk Nation. Please join me for Rock Talk and interviews each and every weekday, live 3 to 5 Eastern, noon to 2 Pacific, on Faction Talk Channel 103, or anytime on the Sirius XM app. Last week, I brought you that big Sammy Hagar special. If you have Sirius XM, you can watch that and hear the music performances by going to the Sirius XM app right now. Full video of that is now available also. Get that free trial if you don't have Sirius XM and you can sample it for three months. No credit card required. Again, SiriusXM.com slash Eddie Trunk. Thank you for listening. I will catch you guys again next Thursday for a new episode of the podcast or hopefully every weekday on the radio. Take care. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.